Each month, St. Louis Magazine investigates some of the most compelling people, events, and more in the region. Now, you can hear these award-winning long-form features from the writers who crafted them. This is St. Louis Retold. In this episode, staff writer Jeanette Cooperman reads her piece, Too Much Money, which was included in the August 2017 issue of St. Louis Magazine. It tells the story of the largest heist in the history of St. Louis, which started out as a slick caper and fell into comedy. Security guards are trained to notice things, and a car-blasting rap at 5.20 a.m., parked right across from the ATM Solutions Building on Grandel Square, was hard to miss. Still, it was more annoying than ominous. Michael Smith reached for his building keys, bullets for his Smith & Wesson in his other fist. As he walked toward the door, he heard a scuffle of feet moving fast. When he turned, two men in black masks were running straight at him, Smith hurled his bullets and keys at their faces and ran, if he could just make it around the building to the shadows. They reached him first, shoulder-checked him into the concrete building, and struck him across the cheek with the butt of a dull silver handgun. When he opened his eyes, there were four men, not two, all armed, the shortest waving an AR-15 assault rifle. It wasn't hard to pick out the leader. He didn't cuss or use slang the way the others did. He had a sense of self-assurance, and he wanted the vault opened. It's on a timer. You need two people to enter different codes, Smith said. Bullshit, one of the men yelled, and they started arguing. No, we can wait, the leader said. At 5.50 a.m., the second guard, Alan Narr, came in the door and saw Smith, hands crossed in front of him and tied with duct tape. Nar, a nice guy, just months from retirement, slowly punched in his code. The vault door swung open, and there was too much money. Bundles of mainly $20 bills, bagged in clear plastic, stacked high on carts, 50 or 60 bags full, Way more money than they could squeeze into their Grand Prix getaway car. They just had its windows tinted, too. Now they'd have to steal one of the armored vans. Load the money, they told Nar, and start the ignition. Be cool, old man, the leader added, and you won't be hurt. He slid behind the wheel and revved the motor. Tried to back out, banged into the doorframe. Tried again and ran into a push cart pulled forward a third time and zoomed out, whacking the side mirror off the van and getting away with $6.6 million. Four masked men, the press literally called them bandits, had just committed the largest heist in the history of St. Louis. Smith was right when he decided the guy with the smooth diction and shaved head was the leader. John Wesley Jones, also known as Face, 
was 35 at the time of the robbery, August 2, 2010. He stood well over six feet. A tattoo ran down the side of his face, heading toward his thick, muscled neck. Just two weeks earlier, he'd been released from parole. He'd done time for burglary, robbery, possession of marijuana, and a loaded handgun. And he'd made a name for himself in a Kentucky prison trying to escape. Jones grew up rough and talked smooth. He was capable of violence and practiced at intimidation, but he could charm a woman into just about anything. He tended to hang out at places, a hair salon, a car detailing shop, the way other people go to a day job. Beefy and imposing, he was handy to have around. One glance in his direction, and customers weren't going to complain too loudly. But he wanted to do more than stand guard. A childhood friend would tell police that Face was always restless to steal something, always looking for a lick. He plotted this one with a 23-year-old who stayed across the street from him on Fair Avenue, Myron Pye Kimball. They talked to a woman who used to work at ATM Solutions, and she told them the routine. But just before the heist, they argued. Kimball wanted to go home and be with his girlfriend, who'd said in coy, honeyed tones that she was missing him. Jones wanted them both to stay put, waiting together like soldiers before a military op. So Kimball went AWOL, and Jones paired up with a guy with the perfect name, Raisheen Money, instead. Each man brought along a protege. For Jones, it was a 19-year-old with a sweet nickname, Lil Larry, but head tattooed on one forearm and busta on the other to cut the sugar. He and Face were tight, Kimball says, almost father-son tight. For Money, whose nickname was Wicked, but who was a little chubby, loved music, and had a pretty benign reputation. The young'un was Aaron Johnson. That morning, the four men sped away from ATM Solutions, pumped with adrenaline, heading for a house on Page where Face's new girlfriend lived. Face steered the van into Latunia Wright's alley garage, scraping the doorframe and knocking off the other side view mirror. When the motor stopped, everybody jumped out, relieved and excited, and, wait, who's got the keys? They'd locked themselves out of the van. They smashed a window to get back inside and quickly unloaded the money. Then Jones had the young'uns drive the van several blocks away and ditch it. By now, Kimball had learned that the heist he helped orchestrate was going down without him, so he showed up at the Page house, too. Man, she didn't say there was going to be this much, he blurted, taking in the stacks of cash. Bro, we didn't even get all of it, Face said. They tore off the purple and white currency bands, bundle by bundle, started counting, got tired of counting, drove to Prime Soul on Newhall's Ferry and celebrated by buying four pairs of new Air Jordans, 
plus a wee pair of Nike Dunks for Johnson's new baby. Back at the house on Page, the multi-millionaires ate Emo's pizza and fried chicken and made their plans. They'd need to stay low, go to Miami, take about 200000 with them to spend. They'd be chauffeured by two strippers they knew. They already had a place to stay. Except for the shock of all that money, everything was rolling according to plan. Back at the Batcave, the FBI and city police had teamed up, and they had a few good leads to follow. Around 7.15 a.m., a woman was talking to her mom on the phone when she heard a police helicopter. Just as her mother said, there was a big robbery at ATM Solutions, a damaged ATM Solutions van came out of an alley and pulled in front of her car. A black Dodge Charger pulled out behind her, went around, slid into place behind the van. Both vehicles ran a red light at Page, and she saw the driver of the Charger motioning to the van to turn left. She called 911. What she'd seen was the young'uns on their way to ditch the armored van. It was found nearby, locked with its engine running. Fresh damage suggested it had been rammed into a small garage. Later that morning, the Getaway Grand Prix was found, also locked with its engine running. At 8 the next morning, the air was already thick with heat. The temp would shoot to 102 by mid-afternoon. Dressed in jeans and bulletproof vests, Detectives Roger Murphy and William Burdell canvassed the area, looking for a black Dodge Charger. They stopped a minute to compare notes. A black Dodge Charger sped out of the alley. The detectives took off, Murphy driving, Burdell on the radio. The driver of the Charger went southbound in the northbound lanes of Vandeventer, Murphy says, then east on McPherson and ran a red light where it teased into Lindell and continued to violate every light going east. We threw the dash light up and put the siren on. The charger was weaving, other cars skidding out of the way. It clipped the front of an elderly woman's car and kept going. At 3100 Olive, the driver took the curb like he was riding in a steeplechase. The charger bobbled across a grass lot toward an alley and stopped at the fence. He got out, jumped on the roof, and went over the fence. Burdell jumped out and chased him. Finally, he just turned around and gave up, out of breath. It was John Wesley Jones. He didn't seem angry, Murphy says, more nonchalant. They cuffed him and opened the charger's trunk, and when they unzipped the black duffel bag, money spilled out. Where'd that come from? asked Jones. He had almost $5,000 in his pocket and a forty caliber six-hour pistol on the floor. Relieved he hadn't fought, they dropped him off at the station and drove back to the Page house to secure it until the FBI showed up. It was easy to find, a skid of burned rubber making a path. 
but they still weren't sure they'd collared the right guy. What if he had nothing to do with it, and he'd crashed into an elderly lady because they chased him? They waited, sweating in the heat. Murphy had quit smoking, but he lit up. Finally, his cell rang. You guys got him! Yeah, right, he said, adding a few other choice words. No, seriously, the caller said. There was more than a million dollars in that trunk. When the FBI banged on the door of the Page house, they got no response. So they treated it as a standoff. In came an armored tank with a helmeted rifleman poking out of its top hatch. On a bullhorn, a hostage negotiator urged anyone inside to surrender. SWAT teams lobbed tear gas, smashed windows, sent in a robot, set off flashbangs. Jones's girlfriend, Latunia Wright, was on her way home, but she spotted all the commotion and made a quick U-turn. Inside, dripping with sweat, agents and police gathered money bands and stamps and $250,000 they pried out from the attic insulation. But there wasn't a single clue to ID the other three masked men. Clutching leads like threads in a labyrinth, the investigators moved forward, step at a time. Behind the shop where the Grand Prix was found, a barbecue smoker held half-burned evidence, a black ski mask with DNA on it, two black T-shirts, a radio scanner. The Grand Prix traced back to heavy hitters, a custom car business in Hazelwood where John Wesley Jones used to hang out and his girlfriend used to work. Tips flew in, naming people who'd been flashing money or sharing it around and not with the tipsters. On September 7th, John Wesley Jones's sorta estranged wife, Tamika Jones, told detectives that his girlfriend, Latunia, had brought her money to pay for a lawyer. Latunia said she'd only told law enforcement, quote, what they needed to hear. She and her Girl Scouts had put cash into vacuum-sealed bags and hidden it in a storage locker rented in the name of a Christian person. She was, she told Tamika, having a hard time trying to hide all the money. After Jones's arrest, the other three masked men scattered. Raisheen Money took some money and a stripper to Texas. Aaron Johnson stayed with women in Kansas and Arkansas, then went to Houston, staying with somebody called Big Homie. They burned through phones every three days or so. When Johnson bought a new one, he'd text the new number but subtract Big Homie's address. He came home for the birth of his son, then rushed back to Houston. Meanwhile, there were enough accomplices running around St. Louis to cast a reality show. On August 20th, police spotted Myron Kimball, the guy who helped hatch the plan, and chased him through Forest Park, 
his Cadillac Escalade sailed right into the water. I didn't know it was a lake, he'd say later. I can't swim. I'm seeing ripples in the ground and thinking, that's got to be water. So I get out. I'm hanging on the door, holding on. And then I did a little doggy paddle. And then I felt the bottom. I ran through some bushes to the train tracks and got to a bus station and paid somebody $20 for his black Arby's work shirt. He said, you want this? Yeah. So I put it on, and he told me I had little sticky bugs all in my hair. So where was the money from the largest heist in St. Louis history? A little of it was divvied up among parents, girlfriends, anybody who'd help hide it. Bills were paid off, shopping sprees conducted. The feds had the money they'd found in the Page attic and the $1.25 million seized from Jones's charger. A lot more was stashed in suitcases Latunia bought at Walmart the night of the robbery, paying with money peeled off a big roll of bills. Why do that, and why not buy them earlier? Because we didn't know there'd be so much money, groaned one of the conspirators. John Wesley Jones had been their leader. Now he was in jail, and Latunia was his deputy. She had the chutzpah. Styling herself Ms. Biz, she'd built a tiny empire, buying and selling cars, cash only. Now, slinging the money-stuffed suitcases into her Lexus, she drove over to a girlfriend's house and asked her to take the vehicle and its cargo of millions to a storage space for safekeeping. Meanwhile, they left the Lexus there and went shopping. You left it parked in her driveway, investigators later asked. Yep. And two days later, while Latunia was being interviewed by the FBI, she stepped out and made a phone call, asking her friend to go back to the storage space, cut the padlock, smash the Lexus's window, and retrieve almost all the money. The friend enlisted the help of two uncles, whom Latunia later accused of pocketing some of the money. What could I do, she'd say, tell the police they stole my stolen money? Most of the cash, though, was vacuum-sealed, driven to Texas, buried beneath an outdoor bench in somebody's former girlfriend's backyard. Then it was dug up, hidden in a Hummer, and driven into a storage space in Atlanta. When Face tried for a plea bargain, he said Latunia's brother James, who seemed to get on his nerves, was in contact with someone called Osama in Milwaukee. Osama had offered inside information on ATM solutions because he needed money to fund terrorist attacks in Chicago, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. The Joint Terrorism Task Force got involved and an expert in terrorist threats went in to talk to Jones. He came out soon after and said the dots weren't even connected. It is true, though, that one of the guys from Heavy Hitters took about $20,000 of the ATM loot to Milwaukee in a shoebox. On the drive up, police stopped the vehicle because it was going too slowly. 
The guy said he was bringing money to a friend in Milwaukee. Police searched, found the money, and waved him on his way. John Wesley Jones is an inventive guy. When he was caught the day after the robbery, he had a story ready. He'd run into a guy at a bar who asked if he was interested in moving some packages for $50,000. He said the only reason he agreed was that he was behind on his car and house payments, and he'd only brought a gun for his own protection because he didn't want to get robbed. After hours of interviews, the feds were developing a grudging admiration for this guy. If you looked through the crime, looked at the person, he was a decent guy, says FBI Supervisory Special Agent Daniel Nedemeyer. Of course, he was a hardened criminal, but to the core, there was some decency there. A vibrant personality. If you met him in a bar, you'd have had a conversation with him. It would have been a conversation of content, chimes in Assistant U.S. Attorney Tom Meehan. Had Jones chosen a lawful path, he adds, I could see him as a logistics guy, solving problems. He had a Svengali approach to people. And he had a Houdini approach to incarceration. While Jones was being held in a St. Genevieve jail, the FBI got a tip that he was plotting another escape. He was swiftly moved to a more secure facility, the jail in Lincoln County. Two months after the ATM heist, Jones and another inmate waited for the 3 a.m. headcount. When the deputies moved on, Jones climbed on a metal railing and threw the drop ceiling in their cell block. Pushing aside the ceiling tile, he grabbed a pipe from the sprinkler system pulled himself into a three-foot crawl space and waited for his friend. Tearing off part of a ventilation duct, they crept along for ten feet, reached a huge exhaust fan, used a broom handle to break its bolts loose, and emerged on the roof. They made it five miles on foot, then stole a truck at a gas station in Moscow Mills. Two days later, the U.S. Marshals searched the Swansea home of somebody Jones knew. Nedemeyer and Meehan were listening from the Marshal's St. Louis office. They heard, Oops, we got him. He just fell through the ceiling. Come on, Meehan thought, enough with the jokes. But Jones had just fallen through the ceiling. He was on the floor, covered in insulation and drywall dust. Once again, the game was up. Four days after Jones was recaptured, at 4 p.m. on a Sunday, two teenage girls, Latunia's daughter and her cousin, were pulled into a car outside their grandmother's house. Lil Larry Newman, Jones's youngin', had been paid 50000 for the heist, and he'd begun to think he was screwed. So his pal Pi, escape artist Myron Kimball, came out of hiding to help him, and they devised a plan to kidnap the girls. We didn't know how young they were, Kimball says now. 
We spoiled them. Went to Walgreens, bought one a whole new jogging outfit and panties. She'd wet her pants with fear. I said, we're not going to hurt you. But the FBI had no way of knowing that. The kidnappers were asking for $50,000, delivered by Latunia's brother James. When the ransom dropped to $15,000, the feds realized all they really wanted was a way to pressure James for the robbery money. I think we could have talked him down to a Cabela's gift card, Mian says dryly. He and Nedemeyer were downing vats of caffeine, vying for the Snickers bars and the vending machine, quick energy to keep them going all night. The kidnappers had taken the girls to a budget inn, and they kept driving back and forth between Missouri and Illinois. Never sat in one place long enough for us to catch up with them, Nedemeyer says. Monday afternoon, the 14-year-old was released. The older girl, 16, would be exchanged for money James brought to a schnook's parking lot in Bell Fountain Neighbors. Kimball pulled up with the girl, saw another car drive near the planned location, panicked, and raced away, driving smack into an oncoming FBI car. He took off running, burst into an apartment in Spanish Lake, and held its occupants at gunpoint for a few hours, saying, I'm not trying to hurt you, I'm just trying to get away from somebody. Finally, two of the women offered to drive him someplace just to get rid of him. He had a brainstorm. Give me your clothes. He changed, and three women walked out of the apartment. They drove to a gas station near North Grand. Why do you dress like a fairy, yelped Lawanda Carraway, the girlfriend he'd called to pick him up. He was wearing a zip-up red and white jacket, embellished with a heart, skinny blue jeans, and black boots with fur on them. A pink hoodie was pulled up over his head. They dressed me up, Kimball said, adding faintly, you really don't want to know what's going on. One of the women came up to the car and demanded her boots back. I felt really gay, Kimball admits now. When I was leaving, I asked the girls to give me a full-length mirror so I could make sure I was walking right. Am I swishing too hard? No, you perfect. Well, let's go then. There was police everywhere. Caraway just shook her head. It was her Cadillac Escalade he'd drowned in Forest Park. Afterward, he'd told her he was in a high-speed chase, but he swore he left the truck in good shape. The police must have put it in the lake. Kimball stayed free for another eight days until the law caught up with him at St. Clair Square. They collared him in the women's room. He swears it was just coincidence. Investigators had plenty of questions, but when they got to the kidnapping... Kimball furrowed his brow and asked what kidnapping they were referring to. Was it the one he'd seen on the TV news? Yeah, it was. And they now had Kimball and three of the four masked men in custody. Texas authorities had picked up Raisheen money back in November, 
using a warrant from a June 2009 case. The charge? Alleged possession of 205 grams of cocaine and 41 pounds of marijuana compressed into a single block swathed in plastic and dryer sheets. A guy that was arrested in Oklahoma bringing dope to St. Louis couldn't wait to tell what he knew, explains Nedemeyer. Money had bragged about the robbery. The courier remembered the street where he lived and a basketball hoop in the driveway. So the feds took him on a street view tour on Google Earth, and he ID'd the house. Money had a bit of the ATM loot on him. He was planning to invest it in marijuana, a clothing store, and a cat house in Houston. Latunia, Jones's girlfriend, pleaded guilty to conspiracy and transporting stolen property. There's a lot I'd like to state, she told the judge, but I'm at a loss for words. She'd been on Judge Joe Brown's TV show about six months before the heist, and her dream had been to snag a spot on the reality show Bad Girls Club. Now she was writing a book about the ATM case. That's how I'm getting paid, she told a friend. I was trying to get on a reality show, and this is reality, but damn, I can't get paid for it. Instead, she was ordered, as they all were, to repay the missing $3.6 million in ATM money, and she was sentenced to 51 months in prison. Later, at Jones's sentencing, attorney Joel Schwartz relayed his statement, saying, It would be disingenuous for him to apologize or say he's sorry or a similar cliché because he's not. Later, Schwartz told the press, he's probably truly sorry that he was caught. Now, only one of the masked men was still at large, and Nedemeyer remembered that the day of the robbery, when they all bought tennis shoes, Aaron Johnson bought some booties for his new baby. We thought it was nonsense. Then we found receipts for four pair of tennis shoes and one pair of booties. A year later, we realized the baby was about to turn one. We set up surveillance at the girlfriend's house, and here comes Aaron Johnson down the street holding a gift bag. The last thing I said to him was, Happy birthday to your son. He said, How do you know that? I said, How do you think we caught you? And he's saying, Shit. After a 54-week manhunt, the fourth masked man was in custody. Each of the other robbers had said at some point that there was just too much money. The phrase came up so often it was a running joke for the investigators. So there they sat, listening to the interview with Johnson, waiting, waiting. And then he said it, too much money. Later that month, law enforcement found a Hummer in a storage space in Atlanta, piles of vacuum-sealed money blanketing the engine. There was about $660,000 in the Hummer, also a pink Disney blanket that matched a blue one from Latunia's house. When she went to Atlanta to check on the storage locker, 
Her car and all the money were gone. Furious, she showed up at Meehan's office with her attorney. I was forced to take the money down to Atlanta, she insisted. Ceremoniously, Meehan presented her with a photo of all the money stacked high on the hood of the Hummer. Wait a minute, she said. The money wasn't stacked up on the hood. You got my money. Meehan grinned and said it nice and slow. No, Latunia, we got our money. Hey everyone, this is Steph Zimmerman, the Digital Media Manager at St. Louis Magazine, and I'm here with Jeanette Cooperman in our Brentwood office to ask her a couple questions about her piece, Too Much Money. Jeanette, what was, what was kind of the biggest challenge of writing this story? The cast of characters. It was too big. I, there were so many people that I had a giant piece of paper and I drew arrows and tried to figure out girlfriends and cousins and family relationships because these guys pulled in everybody they knew to try and help hide the money and just keeping track of everybody. You know, it, it would have been a much cleaner story if I had three people to deal with. <laughs> I wish they'd steal another one and do it differently. And how, when you're working, what, how do you actually keep track of that? Do you have post-it notes? Do you have, uh, do you draw graphs? What do you, what do you do? I had my big sort of genealogy map and I would have to keep changing it like, oh, wait a minute. No, he knew him back when they lived on this street. And so then they knew the girlfriend and then, so I added arrows to it and I just kept tracking and then I kept a list of names and then I kept a timeline to show who did what when, and then all the legal stuff that followed, like who got captured when, who escaped when, because we had escapes and we had captures and we had legal proceedings, and it was just a mess. And you actually, you had the chance to go to um, to prison in Jefferson <laughs> yeah, City <not> <laughs> um, <laughs> for, for an afternoon. You went there with our staff photographer, Kevin yes. Roberts, mm -hmm. um, who took the pictures included in the feature. Um, what was what was that experience like? Well, it was amusing. Uh, we got there, and first of all, I saw a sign that said, no leggings allowed. And, you know, they're, they're pretty strict. It was a fairly high-security prison. And I looked down, and I had leggings on, and I thought, oh, God. And then I thought, no, they mean the sort of yoga pants ones where everything's visible. So I managed to get in, and then Myron Kimball came out, and he saw the photographer and me, and I had written and talked to him. You know, we had set all this up. But he saw the camera, and he said, oh, man, I thought we were just going to talk. I don't know that I want to do this. <laughs> you know, it had been a long drive. So it took a long time of talking to him, and then it turned out what he was really worried about was just, you know, what the photo would look like. And he was worried. He had safety concerns. Like, he didn't want people to think he was telling. They had all agreed not to talk about this. So we talked through, you know, what to say and what he was comfortable with, and we managed to to get him to agree, but it was not easy. Um, can we go back? So why, why aren't leggings allowed in jail? What, that doesn't make <laughs> I, sense to I me. I think that in other cases, younger, curvier women, they are distracting to the prisoners. I don't think I was the issue. But I was a little concerned that, once again, we'd have to make a U-turn and go back home. All right. And it, obviously, you, were, you spent a lot of time in this story and kind of putting together all the different pieces. 
what would you have done differently if you were a part of the team? If you were, <laughs> if on, I was doing the you're heist. part of the heist. What what would you done, have done differently? Well, I would like to say that I would have had the discipline to not take all the money. I mean, that was the funny refrain. It was just too much money, and that's when things started to fall apart. Uh, if they had taken less, they wouldn't have had to steal the ATM van. Then they wouldn't have damaged it. Then they wouldn't have scraped it. They wouldn't have had to ditch it. A lot of that trail would have been cold. It would have been non-existent. But it's really hard for people to see that much money and not take it. So I don't know if I would have had the willpower. The other thing is that they dragged in too many people. They had girlfriends and family members and they told people and they needed a bunch of help to get all that money hidden. And you know, they really should not have expanded their circle to that many people because they all rolled over pretty easily when the authorities started finding them. So fewer people, less money. All right, so now you know Jeanette Cooperman's plan yep. just for the future. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. This episode of St. Louis Retold has been brought to you by St. Louis Magazine. If you want to read Jeanette's piece, you can find it online at stlmag.com. If you don't want to stare at a screen, I encourage you to subscribe to St. Louis Magazine. And uh, please let us know what you think about the story via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you would like to sponsor this podcast, we would love to chat with you. You can give us a call at 314 918 3002. Till next time, St. Louis.